Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. Good morning. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Unless you're living under a rock, you have seen our culture change. Whether you think that's a good change, a bad change, we'll talk about this in a few minutes. I'm not really concerned at the moment, but we lived in a very, more than ever, sexualized culture that our culture has become more and more open and more and more free and more and more identifying primarily through sexuality. And in these days, these issues of sexuality are not just theoretical. They're not just out there. I think more than ever we are encountering that these are affecting people in very personal, very relational, familial ways. I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands, but how many of you have friends or close, fam- or close friends or family members who struggle with some form of sexuality openly? In one sense, we're all broken sexually. But in another sense, the church cannot just keep talking about the people out there because it's coming home, it's coming to roost even within the church. It is hard to go through a news cycle, it's hard to go through anything in the internet, within social media, without some type of transgender homosexual, young hookup culture that is just being promoted, it's being dominant, and it is rampant. And as a church, this is something we need to talk about. This is something we need to address. And why it's so hard is because there are literally, like a generation older than me, my parents' generation, and the world that they grew up in is so much different than the world that my kids are growing up in. Not to mention the millennials and the really cool people, the Gen Xers, okay? Like every generation has its own like issues, strengths and things and and weaknesses. And so how do you, how do I, how do we as a church talk about this across so many spectrums of belief? Like how do we talk about it in a sense that this is very hyperbolic for everyone in the room, okay? So I'm not attacking anyone in this example yet. But the sexual ethic that we're going to probably come away with at the very ends, everyone older than me is just going to be like, that's right, get back to that. And everyone younger than me is going to be like, are you sure? That doesn't sound right. Why? I wonder how much scripture is actually informing our understanding of a sexual ethic, as opposed to just a cultural understanding. And as far as your understanding of your sexual identity and what you think of sexual ethics in our day, as much as it is actually tied to a scriptural, biblical worldview, will be the degree to that we're right. Not just because we grew up in a different world than other people did, in a different culture than other people did. And so the next several weeks, Nate and I want to divide our church and make it, no, Nate and I want to talk about this <laughs> from, a, from a, what I want to, I, um, Jen was asking me this morning how my sermon was going, and I said, the thing I'm really concerned about is trying to figure out how to present this without just like being a hammer and just beating the Bible and biblical ethic. What I want to do is over the next six weeks, Nate and I present a winsome biblical ethic. 
why does Scripture speak the way it does? And we're going to come to see that God didn't just randomly make up rules for people to follow. They actually mean something. There's something beautiful about God's design. And in that, we want to take this week, I'm just going to do an introduction, and then we're going to look at several different topics that are going to deal with issues of like the hookup culture and the immoral world. And we're going to talk for a couple weeks on homosexuality and how do Christians deal with that and what do Christians believe about that. And we're going to do a week, Nate's going to do a week on transgenderism and what that looks like and why, what that should look like from a biblical worldview. And then close our time, our last sermon in six weeks, the plan is anyways, for six weeks, the last sermon will be like, how do we as a people of God live in the world that we live in and yet still hold to the story? How do we live out who we are as God's people? And so there's going to be lots of questions that you have that I don't address. And the way that you can get them addressed is you can just come talk to me. You can email me. You can do anything you want. But I want to talk... As I said, I'm not afraid to talk with people about these issues because I don't have all the answers. But what I do know is that we're going to come together and we're going to study this together. And I'm not coming to you as like the expert that you must believe what I believe. But I'm going to show you from Scripture, from the best of my ability, why we believe what we believe. And so this morning I have three points. Number one, where are we? The present situation. Number two, how did we get here, the past realities? And then number three, why we are here, what we actually are called to be as God's people. So pray with me and help, ask the Spirit to help us. Father, we need you to help us not just identify with what's right, what's wrong, to believe our opinion, but we actually need you to unite us around the good news of Jesus and the ethic that derives from your story so that we might be people who will witness to that new world right now. So God, I pray for love. I pray that in this series that you will help us to come alongside each other in this room, in our daily life, with people who are struggling from anything, from lust to pornography to immorality to homosexuality to transgender, like God, it is here. And so help us to love and come alongside and encourage each other to be pushed to Jesus and to see what he brings us. And so we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we ready? All right, let's jump in. How do we get here? Well, this is where we are. We live in a culture that is far different today than it was 30 years ago. 30 years ago, you hear a statement that says, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body. What would you do? You'd be like, you ask someone who's 30 years old, if they lived back then, if they heard that statement, what they'd be like, what are you talking about? And yet today, that's a pretty common understanding. It's a pretty common statement. When someone says it, we're not like appalled. We're not like, oh my gosh, you're weird. We're like, this is normal. And so my first point about where we are is this, that regardless, and it's on the screen, regardless of what you believe on these issues, no matter what ethic you hold to at the moment, whatever positions you believe in, you have to admit that in the history of ideas, that these ideas have moved exponentially quickly. What do I mean by that? I mean this is that it takes a while for cultures to actually change. We're going to look at this in a few moments, but do you know that for a thousand years, Western civilization was very static? It didn't change much. For a thousand years. And then in the last 30 to 50 years, we have had this revolution go on, and it is like an avalanche. It started small, and now it is just picking up steam. I mean, just think, it was 50 years ago, just 50 years ago, and I think that's not a very long time in the history of ideas, that they voted to remove homosexuality from the DSM, 
I don't know if you know what that is, but 50 years ago, if you were a homosexual, they would actually call you and have, you'd have a mental disorder. Can you imagine someone, your friend, homosexual, and calling him, you have a mental disorder? That was 50 years ago. In 1982, I was five years old, and you can do the math if you forget how old I am. Wisconsin became the first state to outlaw discrimination based on sexual orientation. I mean, it was just 1982 when some first state in the union decided you cannot discriminate based on sexual orientation. It wasn't until 1988 when there was a first national coming out day. All of you red Christians believe this one. Do you know that Bill Clinton signed a Defense of Marriage Act? Bill Clinton, in 1996, signed that the marriage is between a man and a woman. Isn't that, I mean, how many of you would be like, yes, I want Bill Clinton today? <laughs> Don't, some of you would. I'm just, that's a joke, okay? My point, my point is just, that was 1996. It wasn't that long ago. Until 2004, the first legal same-sex marriage in the United States takes place in Massachusetts. The first marriage of a same-sex person, of a couple, took place just 19 years ago and until 2013 when the Supreme Court made it legal for all couples who want to be married to have rights was in 2013. This is a fast-paced revolution going on in our culture. Whether you like it or not, you just have to admit that. But I think another thing that's happening in the midst of this fast pace is number two, it's not only these stances on morality issues have changed so quickly, but it is now that if you don't support them, you are actually the outcast. You are actually the person who hates people. In the 2013 Windsor decision, you don't have to know that, that's just the time when the Supreme Court allowed homosexual marriages to occur. The United States struck down the Defense of Marriage Act, the thing that Bill Clinton signs, and said that marriage is no longer just between a man and a woman. And the majority opinion accused people who believed in marriage between a man and a woman, these people accused us, if you will, the Christians, of being motivated by animus, by being motivated by hostility, by being motivated by hatred. And there's articles that are written by all these people that say that if you believe in the Defense of Marriage Act, you are doing injury, you are degrading, you are demeaning, you are humiliating and harming people who believe in same-sex unions. That we are calling those people unworthy and they had all of this animosity and hatred towards us. And then we, the people who believe in defense of marriage, that it's between a man and a woman, and we'll talk about that later, would claim religious liberty. Well, we believe in religious liberty. We should be able to believe what we want to believe. But the chairman, and I'm not going to give you all the quotes of who this guy is, but he made this statement in 2013. The phrases religious liberty and religious freedom will stand for nothing but hypocrisy so as long as they remain code words for discrimination, intolerance, racism, sexism, homophobia, Islamophobia. Christian supremacy is nothing more than a form of intolerance. What he's getting at is that he's making a case that if you don't accept all of these things, then you are discriminating. You are against those people. You are intolerant. Which begs the question, what does intolerance, what does tolerance actually mean? There's a book, if you'd like to read it on this topic, but it's called The Intolerance of Tolerance. And, and in this book, D.A. Carson highlights old tolerance with new tolerance. Old tolerance maybe going back 30 to 70 years ago, would allow and permitted a difference of opinions. You and your neighbor could disagree on something. And what your neighbor and you disagreed on was not that you, and you in and of yourselves were wrong, 
but that you had a different opinion. So that old tolerance was directed more at ideas and opinions. That tolerance, what I'm getting at, has now shifted. That we're no longer just intolerant of like ideas, but we're intolerant of people. And one way you see this is just in the cancel culture. As soon as someone disagrees with something, that person just gets kicked out of Hollywood, out of mainstream, out of everything. Because they have a different viewpoint. They are actually being canceled. And one of the things I want to say is that Christians, we should be the most accepting and loving and tolerant people. It doesn't mean we embrace everything everyone does or believes everything it believes. But because someone is different than us, and we are not loving and embracing them and serving them, that is on us. Parents, how do your kids hear you talk about people you disagree with? Parents, how do you deal with your kids and their different ideas about life? It's not that we can't stand up for what we believe in. We should. But we cannot begin to just be like, oh, that person, that, that political person that you love or you hate. But actually getting underneath and being like to your kids, why do you believe that? Well, what do you think that does? Where do you think the outcome goes? And so we have, in the last 30 years, experienced this avalanche where not only is the sexual revolution just snowballed, but now it's to a place where that if you don't agree with everything, you're actually the outcast. And I want to challenge us as a church to be old tolerant, to love people even though they're different than us. And why? Because how much different are you from Jesus A lot more than your homosexual friend is from you. And yet Jesus came and loved you, did he not? So how can we not, someone who is much more like us, love those who are different than us? See, Jesus, again, sets the bar for us. And it's when we elevate ourselves and we have pride and arrogance that we begin to look down on others. And that's where we're at. And you, we could go a lot more with that, but you know that probably way more than I do, what our culture looks like. But I want to spend a few moments talking about how did we get, to, number two, how did we get here? How did we actually get here? We're tempted to think that these choices in our culture, like free sex, homosexuality, transgenderism, are just simply a set of moral ethics that we've just changed our mind on. Like, yeah, I shouldn't eat the cookie, now I'm going to eat the cookie. But it's far more than that. It's actually we have changed our worldview. We have changed our system of beliefs. And every system of beliefs comes with it a certain set of ethics. Every system of belief has its own authority. I was thinking about this this morning as I was kind of reviewing for the morning. Is like, you know, I had my Bible in my hand at my house. And I'm like, what if someone didn't believe this Bible? Like, yeah, I'm not going to believe that book. I was like, well, you know what? You may not believe this book, but you have your own book. It may not be written, because you haven't written it yet, but you have your own book. You have your own authority. You have your own set of ethics. You have your own worldview that you are ascribing to. So Christians, we're not any different than anyone else. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, I'm so glad you're here. But you're not different than us. We're all people who have a worldview, a set of authority that we believe is true, out of which comes an ethic, out of which comes a belief about sexuality. So this means two things at least. Number one, it means we do not just change our ethics or our list of rules. You don't just wake up one day and be like, you know what, I'm going to change my mind on sexuality. What has been happening is that the tectonic plates, plates 
of the philosophical subterranean earth have been rumbling for a while. Things that you can't see. If we're going to use like the imagery of an iceberg, you can only see the top 10%. And 90% of the iceberg is under the water. And that is what's happening in our culture. It's that there's been a 90% shift in worldview that you now see the change at the top. Because all moral acts derive from a story, derive from a worldview. In fact, one commentator, one theologian on the screen says this, a moral act cannot be seen as an isolated act, but involves fundamental options about the nature and significance of life itself. What's he saying? You don't just change an idea. You're changing a worldview. We're all products of our cultural worldview. Whether you're 80 and you're a product of the cultural worldview in which you grew up in, or you're 15 and you're a product of the cultural worldview that we find ourselves in now, we all in between are products of that cultural worldview. And it would be naive for us to say that our current beliefs about sexuality are not to some degree shaped by that. So whatever position you take on your sexual ethic, do you know the deeper worldview that you have already bought into and what it's actually promoting? I have a slide, I'm not sure where it is, sorry Sebastian, it's about intellectual honesty. And, and my point in this is like, do you have the intellectual honesty to actually examine the deep subterranean worldview that you have bought into and what that worldview actually creates. Because number two, the question becomes, which worldview, which system of belief actually takes into account the reality of the world and produces the most flourishing way of life. Not all worldviews are created equal. And so the question is, is which subterranean tectonic plates have been rumbling? Which worldview do you actually believe in? And be honest with yourself. Dig in. Find out where it came from, why we're here. And now for all of you history buffs, all seven of you, we're going to do Western civilization history in about five minutes, okay? And you can talk to Eric or other history teachers who will give you a better one in a few moments. But look at, on the screen, I have a, a chart with some circles, of course. Oh yeah, that's a good slide too, but no time today. Western civilization. I don't know if you know much about Constantine, but he was a Roman emperor who made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Whether he became a Christian or he just saw the waves, cultural waves going, we're not sure. But from around 500 to about 1600, we have this time we call the medieval period or the pre-modern period. And in this time, we had a belief, the Roman Catholic Church, this is Western civilization, and Regardless of what you believe about Catholicism, I'm just saying that for Roman Catholic Church, they had a belief in theism, and out of that theism for a thousand years was a standard sexual ethic. Everyone agree with me on that? I mean, if you've studied history, like there is a pretty standard ethic for a thousand years. Then in the 16, 1700s, we come into a time in which we have coined, if you're familiar with history, the Enlightenment. You ever heard the phrase, I think, therefore I am? You ever heard that phrase? That was, in a sense, the phrase that sparked a change. And what man began to do is began to put faith, not in God, but in science, in their reason, in their logic, in their rational minds. I think, therefore I am, means I am existent because I can figure things out logically and rationally. And so there began this scientific revolution where the scientific method, and eventually we move into Darwinism and we move into atheism. And so now that there's like this separation 
between a belief in God that creates our ethics to actually an abandonment away from God. But most of our founding fathers, okay, this is debatable too, and you're going to yell at me, but we'll talk later. Most of our founding fathers were not like evangelical gospel-believing Christians. They were deists who believed God created the world and left us alone and didn't believe lots of things. But what they did is they rejected a belief in theism. But you know what they kept? All the biblical ethics. They kept marriage, man and woman. They kept you shouldn't steal from your neighbor. They kept love each other. And there's lots of good things in that. Don't hear me say that's wrong. I'd love to be an American. I'm glad I don't live anywhere else. But what I'm saying is like the belief system began to change away from a belief in theism to deism to atheism. And yet we kept holding on to the biblical ethic. And so then we come into like the, the 20th century with these German theologians. Um, and we might talk about some of these over the next couple weeks, but just splatter them in, not just go from Rousseau to Kant. To, yeah, okay. But what we will do is say right here that... In the 1900s, we have people like Friedrich Nietzsche, who said God is dead. We have killed him. Sure, he was an atheist, but do you know why he said that? It's because we have taken the theism and removed God. We've killed him. And what he was saying is that eventually what's going to happen is if you kill God, you're going to kill God ethics. And so what has happened? We've moved away from a theism, a complete unity of theistic belief in God and an ethic that derives out of that, and we've separated it to now they're actually completely separate. And what we have now on the far right is what we call the postmodern world. The postmodern world has a complete separation between these circles. On the, on the next slide, I want to keep going with this, is that we have turned it into two worlds, two stories, a upper story and a lower story. And you're going to hear these phrases, upper and lower story, for the next few weeks. So I'm um, trying to introduce it to you right here. But we call it a fact-value split. You ever heard anyone say, well, that's true for you, but it's not true for me? Ever heard that idea? Where did that come from? We didn't just wake up one day and be like, that's not true for me, but it is for you, and vice versa. It came from this separation from our ethic and what we believe to be true about the world and our morality, so that now Christians have bought into this, and we believe that there is a sacred life and a secular life. There is a sacred world and there is a secular world. The secular world is on the bottom story. It's the fact. It's public. That's objective truth for everyone. But on the top, there is this private, subjective, this is true for me, reality. And this is the influence of postmodernism. And so what you're seeing is a complete separation between what is happening. We're living in a very unique time in world history. And the division between these two realms, these two stories, the upper and lower story, is crazy. It's just crazy. Because most philosophers, you ever heard the phrase, philosophers rule the world just a thousand years after they're dead? But this is what they were saying was going to happen a long time ago. Like Nietzsche was saying, and these German theologians, that eventually these worlds are going to be split, and there is going to be war going on between these two worlds. I don't know how familiar you are with this, but I, and I'm not a fan of this guy. I'm not a fan of many people. I'm just using this as a neutral thing. Bill Maher, anyone know who Bill Maher is? He's a unique man. Because he's very progressive, but he stays in that lower story of facts. And so now he's, in my words, he's attacking all of his friends who live in the upper story, even though he's in the same worldview as he, they are. Like, it's just crazy to look at how these things actually take place. And the last thing I want to do for our history lesson today is this, is that this fact-value split 
has now turned into what I want to call a body-person split. A body-person split. What do I mean by that? Well, the fact, the bottom story, the, the story of science, the story of reason that is true for everyone, that is like what we believe our bodies to be. But the value fact, the things that are true for you but may not be true for me, are what we call person. The bodies, the science, our biology, our chemical makeup stay in the bottom story, but what we are as a person who we believe ourselves to be is in the top story. Our identity is what we feel about who we are as a person. It does not have anything to do with who we are as a body, as a person. If I could illustrate this, because we're not going to deal with this topic, but if I could illustrate it with the, the topic of abortion. How do most people who believe in abortion actually justify abortion? They have to do this body-person split, because they will say, and this, is, and this is not every person, but this is just a general statement, that what is in the woman is a human being. Does that make sense? They can't say it's a wolf. They can't say it's a sheep. They can't say it's a dog. It is a chemical, biological organism that is human. But what they say is that it does not have personhood, that it is not a real person yet. And so that is why you can actually take the life of the baby. It's because even though it is a human and it has biology and has organism and has cells, it does not have personhood yet. It does not have a belief. It doesn't have the ability to make decisions. And so you just see even in abortion how we've separated body from person. We've made this complete separation, this complete break. And this is the world we live in, okay? Like, whether you like it or don't like it, I think as Christians, we need to know where we live, what we live, and why we live. You ever heard that little phrase in the book of Chronicles, the men of Issachar were wise and understood their times? Like, as Christians, we need to know what's going on in our world, because if we're not being daily, pushing ourselves into God's story, the world, the story that the world tells about itself will become our story. And I want us to be very aware of what is going on. It doesn't mean you have to get a PhD in fact, value, philosophical splits, okay? But what it does mean is you should be aware of what's actually going on and how we got here and why we got here. So how do we get here? A whole bunch of dead philosophers started making ideas, and it began to shift and break apart more and more and more our reality. Now, number three, why we are the biblical framework. And what I want to say is that if Christianity is the true worldview, then it should not only provide flourishing for Christians, but it should provide flourishing for everybody. You can't just hold a worldview and says it only flourishes for me. That's not a true-to-reality worldview. And whatever worldview that we hold to, that you hold to, I think you need to make sense of both the top and the lower stories. It must be a unified vision, a unified worldview where your facts and your values actually don't collide with each other. And when they actually are integrated and work together, provide flourishing and love for each other. And one thing... I would like to say to all of us is that most of our decisions about these things, they're not simply intellectual ideas. What do I mean by that? People don't just make bad decisions and commit immorality and come out and do all these things. There is emotion tied to it. There's emotion tied to it. 
Why has a lot of the church changed their stance on homosexuality? I think it's not just because they're intellectually saying, oh, this is okay. If we're honest with ourselves, it's because we know people and our emotions get into it and we begin to love those people and we want to keep loving those people. That's not the point. The point is, is that we have a lot of emotion and baggage tied up into what we believe. And so there's a lot of people that look at the church and be like, the church is the reason I've left and believe all these things because they're such mean people. And I'm like, one, I'm sorry. Two, you're right. But can you see that your emotion is tying up what you believe? And just be honest about it. Same thing with me. Like what I believe is tied up with a lot of my emotions and my culture and my people and my friends and my story. But do you have the intellectual honesty and the emotional honesty to actually go beyond that and say, what does Scripture teach? How can I find a way for Scripture to make sense? And the thing I want to really say about this is that we must find a, a worldview that is unified that brings body and person, that brings fact and value, that brings a worldview and an ethic that creates love and flourishing for all people. And to do that, I want to go back to Genesis chapter 1. It's on the screen for you. And we want to look at the image of God. I'll make a few points from Genesis 1 as we close out our last point here together. Look in Genesis chapter 1, maybe a familiar passage, but it's on the screen. It says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the grounds. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living thing that moves on the grounds. I don't know if you caught that, but over and over again, we're made in whose image? Say it out loud, because I want you to say this out Make you made in whose image? God's image. There are sister languages to Hebrew. Like, I was hanging out with someone who's from Denmark. English and Danish have nothing in common. Okay? But Spanish and English have a little bit more in common. Same letters, same basically, right? So there's a sister language in the ancient world, Akkadian and Ugaritic. And the word that they use for image means a statue or an idol of a god in its temple. Did you catch that? What does the word image mean? In sister languages, in the nations surrounding Israel, this word image represented an idol or a statue of a god in its temple. So if there was a god Dagon and he had a temple, the word image, you'd go into the temple of Dagon and it'd be a picture of what Dagon actually looked like. And just as a statue or a god is intended to show that the god Dagon supposedly rules this area, you walk into that temple to see that that is who belongs and rules this place. Everywhere you see an image bearer, Every place you see a human, Scripture is actually telling you you're supposed to be reminding yourselves that God is here. We are, in a sense, the image of God. We have a unique status. We are a representational presence of God on the earth. You want to see the invisible God? Look at your neighbor. And that is a demonstration that God rules the earth. So as image bearers, to be made in the image of God does not mean just that we have rational ability to think. It doesn't just mean that we're built for relationship. It doesn't just mean, you know, like God has big dumbo ears and a pointy nose like me. That is not image. Image 
has to do with you and who you are. God made his human beings in his image to represent that he rules the earth. Then number two, not only are we just image bearers, but what do image bearers do? What do you see in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 28? You see the phrase rule, rule, subdue. God, just as he controls and rules and orders all of the chaotic, sorry, all the heavens, he has put us on this earth to rule this earth, to take care of it, to, to cultivate culture, to unearth the hidden potentials that are hidden in the earth and to make cultures and cities and iPhones and iPads. And so we're image bearers. Every human is a representation that God rules the earth. And as image bearers, we rule the earth for him. This is what it means to be made in God's image. But we also see that what it means to be an image bearer is that we are embodied souls. We are embodied souls. When God made man and woman, he made them with physical, corporal, flesh, blood, bodies. We are not brains on a stick. Our bodies were designed with purpose, with, with um, design. Like when you go to the doctor and your eyes are not working, they're like, your eyes are not working. They're not designed to do what they're supposed to do. So wear glasses and touch them every five minutes to put them back up. See, we understand our body was made with a design. Our feet were designed to walk, to kick soccer balls. That's what, well, that's what I think they're designed for. But I mean, like, my ability to walk helps me rule over the earth. My ability to see and to hear and to talk has the ability for me to rule over the earth and to be in relationship with other people. And what it means to be made in the image of God is not just ruling, but having the ability with a body to actually rule. So our bodies matter. Our bodies have purpose. Our bodies have design. And to just ignore that is to go against what the design of Christianity was. But what you also see as image bearers is not just that we're who we are and we are embodied souls, but we also see that we were image bearers together. God says, male and female. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, if you're there, if not, it's just one verse, it says this, God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a what? Anyone know what he says? I'm going to make a what? A helper. A helper. Far too often, this verse has implied that women are inferior, that women are subordinates, or that they were helpers in the sense that maybe they're equal, but they were made to help men achieve what God called the men to do. Women wives are simply there to assist and support the man. Happy plastic people, anyone? Seen that documentary on, on the Duggars and that whole worldview? This is basically what they're saying, is that the wife is just there to help the man achieve what God has intended the man to achieve. But it's interesting, if you just did a quick word search on this word helper, in the Old Testament, you know what you find? You find verses like Psalm chapter 30, verse 10. Hear, Lord, and be merciful to me. Lord, be my helper. Or Psalm 121, lift my eyes up to the mountains, and where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. What we see in this word of helper is not subordination, but they were designed, women, to be like God himself, to be what God is for his people. They were, they were created to reflect God's own character. And without women being made, we would not have the full express image of what God is on the earth. 
It's impossible for just men in and of themselves to express the image of God. They're not subordinates. They are fully functional human beings who are made in the image of God and are called the same thing God is, a helper. It was such a negative, demeaning, subordination term. You wouldn't have phrases or names, like if you're, if you're a dad and you're naming your kid. The, the Hebrew word here is azer, by the way, E-Z-E-R. You ever sing that old hymn, here is my Ebenezer? What is an Ebenezer? It's a stone of help. And so Hebrew parents would name their young um, boys Ebenezer or Eliezer, which means God is my help. My God, help me. Like, this is a very strong and powerful term that doesn't just mean helper, but it means like words like ally, compatriots. Male and female were created for a joint mission in which man cannot fulfill on their own and just didn't need someone to give him a pat on the back to say, keep going. One theologian writes it this way, and I love this phrase, women are strong warriors who stand alongside their brothers in the battle for God's kingdom. And why does she use the phrase women are strong warriors? Because every time this word in the Old Testament is not used of God, it's actually used of other nations who came and militarily helped Israel. So help came in the sense of military might and warriors. And so God sent a warrior to Adam, a warrior to help him. So male and female are both allies together in ruling. What do we see from Genesis 1? We see we are, in and of ourselves, because we're humans, made in the image of God, which gives you value, it gives you worth. We are embodied souls, that we don't have a division between the spirit and the body, even though they're two different things, they're unified, and they work together. And how many of you have a, I mean, how much does your emotional inner life affect your physical life? When you're stressed out, what does your physical body do? Like, it's unified. It works together. And all worldviews have to have that unity. And so God made us a unified reality of body and spirit. And we exercise our status by ruling over the earth God gave us. And we do that together. When you take all those points and you look at the incarnation, it's unbelievable. Who is the express image of the invisible God? Colossians chapter 1 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, so that when Jesus actually shows up, he shows the whole world that God the Father reigns. And in Colossians chapter 3 verse 10, we're being renewed into that image. We're being united to Jesus, and we are being brought to a full understanding of what image means of showing and representing to the world that God reigns. Jesus is that image, and he's inviting all of us to become part of that image. Number two, when Jesus came to earth, did he take on body? Did he take on an embodied soul? Yes, and for how long, church? Trick question. Forever. He didn't just come on and take a body and pretend to be a human for 33 years. He's still embodied. And he's coming back embodied. And he's going to live in the new world forever embodied. Jesus, in his love for you, took on flesh for all of eternity. He is the image of the invisible God, which means body matters. And now he is expressly ruling over the earth. And Revelation 22 says he's inviting us to rule with him. And Jesus is calling male and female together 
as allies and warriors in this battle. You have value. You have meaning. You have worth. Regardless of what you feel, regardless of what culture is telling you, you have an identity that's rooted in Jesus that tells you this is who you are. And we're all broken. And we're all going to look to other things. But we're all going to come back to the image of God is who we were made to be. And in Jesus and through Jesus, we're being restored to that. So that together, we might display that Jesus is Lord of all. Father, help us just to take stock of all that is going on in our minds. Help us to process throughout the week with each other what this, what this means for us. The sermon obviously is insufficient without the Spirit, but it's also insufficient just for a 35-minute lecture. So Spirit, help us to love each other and to work together over these next few weeks as we look specifically at the ethic of what it means to be male and female of what it means to be made in the image of God. Because it is our desire that as a people, we would show the world that you reign. And we do that by taking seriously the world and the story that you are telling and inviting us into. So God, I just want to pray for our church that you'd continue to protect us. We'd love each other, be humble and learn from each other and love each other and pray for each other. And that no matter what we share with people and where we're struggling, maybe even in some of these areas, that we would find genuine love in a place where they will feel safe to share where they're at. And then all of us work to find that meaning and identity in Jesus together. So God, we commit this to you. We, we want to be faithful to you. We want to know and be and do what you've called us to be and do. So help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.